This is part two of Facing Grief, Selected Essays, the audiobook draft. We now continue with essay number six. Selected Essay 6, Now. It is what you make it. There is a moment you may be missing. It is right in front of you. But for some reason, we let ourselves be distracted from experiencing all that it represents. In this essay, we will take a look at recapturing that precious moment we often miss. From Volume 5, Waypoints, an essay written Saturday, January 11th, 2020, on Day 152 of the Journey in the Morning. Now is an interesting concept. It is amazing how we do not really understand the idea, nor do we fully embrace the moment it represents. Now is right in front of us, yet we resist it, or worse yet, ignore it and instead focus on what does not matter. Now actually matters more than we thought. Now is now. It is right in front of you. Yet now is only a platform from which we do so much to resist it. I know in my recent pre-grief life, I had little luxury for now. My life was a constant stream of obligations that could not be ignored in order to drink in the now. I did have my now moments, and I am eternally grateful that I focused on the one who made my now what it was. The one who was everything to me, even though we could not embrace everything we dreamed of embracing. No, those moments were just triggers to deal with the next moment. What needed to be addressed, what had to be done. In that continual evaluation mode, sorting out the stream of obligations was a constant. Yes, this needs to be done. Yes, this would be nice, but I'll have to wait. And no, that is just something that cannot be addressed. Of course, then, there was executing those obligations, whatever they were. Certainly, there were gaps in all the stream. There were momentary lulls in all the action, a respite of sorts. And then there were those times I just embraced my sweetie. I made those moments happen, no matter what I was doing. Sometimes I would just stop what I was doing go over to her and tell her I loved her, remind her of the good and hopefully make her smile. Sometimes try to come up with an expression of my love to try to reassure her, especially when she was feeling ignored or neglected. Grief is actually very good at now. It unfortunately takes now and shoves it in your face. Here, take a good helping of now. Pretty awful, isn't it? You're welcome. No, I'm not welcome. Your helping of now is not welcome or appreciated or wanted. Grief takes now and slaps you around with it until there's not much of you left. Perhaps that is why these writings or the family history I am writing separately are comforting. They have nothing to do with now. For grief has taken now and turned it into everything that represents awful. And it's very good at what it does. So living in the past, there's a bit of insulation. But unfortunately, the return trip to now is inevitable. Now is always waiting to get you back. There are things to do in the now. Time to eat, make the bed, take care of the now. And oh, by the way, here's a slap across the face about how lonely and empty your life is right now. Don't mention it, says grief. It's the least I can do for you. When I gave grief a personality early on and began to address it directly, I seemed to have taken a step to release its hold on the now. It can do all it wants to try to make my nows terrible, to which I say, go away, get out of here, I'll take over for you. Your kind is not wanted here. I instead focus on hope. Hope is actually a future now, one in which the issues of the present now have to step aside for something better. 
The present awful now will always be in the background, but the now of the future will have some kind of new reality. One that I cannot fully grasp as yet, but one I know is sure and true. A better now. The mornings seem to be the most now moments I have. Occasionally those first moments of the day are deceptively like the past. They do not last all that long. They cascade to the painful present, the stark reminder of the stark reality that is at the core of the present now. To which I say, what am I doing here? What am I doing? For the moment, existing. What happened yesterday? Well, that was a now that turned into a then. A now that has become a memory. My sweetie and I would look back at our lives and reflect on events and those who we miss so much. She would say, where did all that go? To which I would say, we live those moments. The nows that have come and gone, all who are part of them now relegated to history. Without an earthly future for the moment, my nows are presently a bit of a tennis match. Me batting away the now that grief wants to pitch to me, and now I understand and reject. When I can get a grip on the now, I take it and try to mold it into something better. I cling to the hope that my Savior has for me. I relish the best of the past nows, those that remind me of the unfathomable love I was blessed to share with the most amazing person I could have ever been blessed to be with. I let those nows out of their box and let them flow into my present now. I'm thankful I've been led to write these essays, each one a glimpse of a now that I had embraced. I look at many of them and are amazed. They cannot be recreated. They could not, since those nows are gone. Each essay like a butterfly that was captured, each one a step, each one a comfort in its own way. I pray that they are a comfort to you in your now, as they have been in mine. Selected Essay 7, Window Dressing. They just hide what is behind them. What is behind the window? In grief, that window is more than just a way to view the outside world. It is a barrier. It separates us from those we left behind when we entered the state of grief. From Volume 7, Bridges, an essay written Sunday, February 16, 2020, on day 188 of the journey in the evening. Those of us in grief understand one thing very well. We live in two worlds. These worlds are separated by a great chasm. It is quite vast. You really do not realize how wide it is until you get here. By that time, it's too late to tell anybody about it, except for the others of us who are already here. That chasm is the divide between those living with a loss and those who are not. At first, when our loss was the latest news, everyone was around us, as if they understood. It seemed like that anyway. People were there. Concern was everywhere. Activity was rampant. And then it wasn't. The world started spinning again. The order of life restored. Everyone went back to their lives. Except for us. We stayed behind. Everything then became rather quiet because no one was there, or very few. There were the hangers-on, some who had a link perhaps, a connection, even those, if we were fortunate to have them, living with us on a day-to-day basis. But for those of us who are alone, there we are, alone. And if that was not enough, the inventory of our loss ever before us. Loss of that connection that we had with another person. 
those daily conversations, those daily interactions, all that made up a shared experience. No longer shared, the connection forever severed, and there we were. As the remaining components of our life fall away, the contacts that we had who just stopped reaching out, those relationships that are now just a bit more awkward than they used to be, the silence falling over our life then becomes complete. The world moved on. And there we are, with nothing to move on to. For me, as has been written in previous essays, I have no context for a future without the one who made my life my life. So not only are we alone, we are also stuck. To the observers, they have no clue. They cannot have one. And I don't want them to. It is just too painful a thing to share, so we don't. Not that anyone is asking us at all. Even if they had the wherewithal to ask, they would not know what to ask. So how are you, they sheepishly inquire. And what do we say? Do we tell them of the ache, the hurt of every moment, the relentless pressure of the absence, the howlness of what was our life that has become nothing after the storm? No, we don't. We cannot. We do not want to hurt them any more than they want to hurt us. So neither of us say what we really feel. We do not hit them with the reality of our situation, and they do not try to bridge the chasm to see if they can reach us. We just share pleasantries. How's the cat? How's the dog? How are you doing? The ache just isn't quenched. Not yet. Not in this life. The abject, harsh reality of it all is that something new must come in and fill the void. Something to fill the chasm. Something that will build a bridge for us back to the others. What will that be for us? No telling, but it will be something. In my case, I have a backup, something to keep me from totally losing it. That would be God. He has been with me through all of this. It is not his fault the world is broken, that death is the enemy, that the sting of death is so relentlessly relentless. But he sent an answer. His son has conquered death for us, and he will guide us in this life if we let him. I'm letting him, and he will fill my future with something to fill the chasm, to enable me to come back. It is just a matter of time. His time, his way. Yet I am scraping along knowing this. It does not take away any of the awfulness for now. But it will because I know it is sure. It is inevitable. It is coming. Then I can take this window dressing down, that barrier that is keeping me from seeing beyond my world, and know that he is leading me to the future he has prepared for me, and for all of those here in the state of grief who trust in him. Selected Essay 8. Timeless. We never see it coming. Throughout our lives, we can look back to periods where living just seemed like it would go on in the same pattern we were used to. When circumstances would change those patterns, we would be disoriented, frustrated, struggling to cope with how what seemed like it would go on forever would now end. In this essay, we will learn how our lives are but a series of timeless moments and how that understanding will help us in our state of grief. From Volume 7, Bridges, an essay written Tuesday, February 18th, 2020, on day 190 of the journey, in the morning. In grief, 
Time has no value anymore. Time stopped for us at the point of our loss. The world, of course, moved on, but for us, we stopped. All the indicators of time that really were of significance ended. Certainly we continue on with the calendar as an awkward tour director. It tells us of our limited obligations, the ones we cannot ignore or refuse to acknowledge, the obligations that are necessary to lead even a shell of a life. In that same way, as we survey our past, which we are very good at since it is one of our recreational activities that we do participate in, we find an interesting observation. Looking at our lives, looking at yours as well, you can remember periods of time that just seemed like they were going to be going on forever. Patterns of our life that were our life for that time. In those periods, it just seemed like time stood still in a sense. Everything we were doing just continued on. Continued on with a predictability that was constant. It was reliable. There it was, week after week, month after month, even year after year. Little did we realize we were thinking life would just go on at that pace, at that level, forever. Knowing perhaps in some deep recess of our being that all of it would end at some point. But it did not end. It did not vanish. It did something worse. It changed. It changed into something else. Those changes were varied in their impact. Some changes were incremental. Some were gradual. Other changes were dramatic. Sometimes they were systemic. At those times, the entire playing field changed, changed to a different game entirely. Those transitions were quite difficult, some taking weeks, months, and years to embrace. Yet eventually, the new pattern would emerge as the pattern, as the way we lived, as timeless, for a time at least. As I survey my world of six months past the end of my life, I'm stuck in the snapshot of my pre-grief life, in this life I am now living. Like those residents of Pompeii, whose lives ended quite abruptly as they were living their day-to-day, my world has been encapsulated in grief, frozen, held in limbo. I have noticed this as I reflect on the artifacts of our life together that stand as a testimony to what was. Like my granddaughter Hannah and her pacifier, I cling to those markers of the life I long for, fully knowing that life has ended. And then I ask myself, what do I do? It's not quite as simple as, well, get a hobby, take a trip, redecorate. No, none of those things are an option. Because those of us in grief face a simple problem. We have no life to lead without the one who was our life. Getting past that, as some would say, is quite impossible, if not downright offensive as an option. And yet, in this current pattern that seems to have no end and no clue as to what would be a meaningful next step, we know from the past that even this life, as we now know it, as excruciatingly awful as it is, will also change at some point. It has to, because it always does. And it will. But until then, until that day, Life is a game of survival. To overcome the anguish, the emptiness, the loss of everything that made us what we were on that terrible day when our lives changed forever, I look at these artifacts of the past and ask, what am I to do with you? What possibly could I ever do with you? Those questions remain, and for now, will so will the artifacts. They will remain. They must. They are, at the worst, the remnants of our former life, a life now gone, 
They represent everything that was precious to us, tributes to what was lost, monuments to the pattern of their day, of that time when they were the day-to-day, reminders of that pattern of life, that pattern that we thought seemed timeless. Until the day that a new pattern will arrive, that change will be more than difficult. Those changes never have been easy, but that has not stopped them from coming. They will arrive, and as crazy as it sounds, will become some new pattern that will, in its own right, become the timeless pattern that we know life will bring, as it always does. Selected Essay 9, Defining Moments Stunning, unexpected, humbling. They are few, yet we experience them at some times in our lives. Certainly when we enter the state of grief, but also when, by the grace of God, we experience the beginning of our emergence from the worst of times we could live. From Volume 7, Bridges, an essay written Friday, March 13, 2020, Day 214 of the Journey, in the Morning. Defining moments in our lives are few. Most represent a dramatic change in our very existence. Some we choose, some we experience without our approval. Those moments, though, are significant. I have just experienced one. Looking back at our lives, those moments pop out. Leaving home to go out on our own. That first moment we officially drive a car. Graduations. Marriages losing our loved ones, moving to another city. The moments that change us forever, cast us in a new role, responsibility, or landscape. Changes which then define us in a new way, a way we could never have seen coming. My defining moment, seven months past, forever changing my life, changing it into something terrible, something dark. Not only changing everything, conceivable, but taking me to a place in which there seemingly, despite all those who would say otherwise, was no escape. Life in that realm, a daily exercise in survival, of coping, alone in the darkness of this new world, with the visions of the past world echoing within the darkness. It is interesting that when defining moments come in our lives, we have little knowledge of how they will actually change us. For some of them, we can only guess, while others land us in unfamiliar territory in which we must operate. My latest defining moment was unexpected, yet not a complete surprise. Continual prayers for relief and transition to something else stretched out over the weeks and months, and in an unexpected moment in time, addressed. For me, recognizing the defining moment would be an afterthought, a realization of the Titanic that was occurring within the course of normalcy. Faith told me there would be an answer, yet it was excruciatingly difficult to end each day without that answer I needed. Day after day, week after week, month after month. Actually, I do not know how I survived until this time. No, I do. I was given what I needed to survive, and I have. When that defining moment came, the effects were profound and all-encompassing. The forces I was subject to were powerful. They were intense and unrelenting. While praying for their demise, the reality of their presence being a constant test of the faith 
I was holding on to. And they have now been vanquished. As Goliath was vanquished with only a stone, the forces that were against me were defeated with something that would never seem to be on the surface, a weapon. Brought in by an incredible person who chose to enter the darkness to not only bring their light, but the light of God's love that they had within them. God's love defeated the darkness, as it always does, and always will. I have been freed, that freedom quite stunning. Just as the darkness held its powerful grip around me, this new freedom now opens up life to a new reality, one in which I'm about to enter, praising God for the defining moment he knew was always ahead of me, and now taking me to the destination his perfect will has ordained. Select the essay 10, Lessons from Caregiving. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. John 15, 13, New Living Translation. To some it may seem mundane, but there is no higher calling than to be a caregiver. Many of us in the state of grief have experienced that reality in our past life. In this essay, the author recounts his story of caregiving. From Volume 8, Lessons, an essay written Friday, May 15, 2020, on day 277 of the journey in the morning. It is interesting how many of us do not get to choose the careers we end up with. For most, work is something we have to do. We need to exist in some form, and work gives us the way to do that. When work is approached as an obligation, it is not all that fulfilling. Then there are those whose work seems to fit them, some in a big way, others in smaller ways. Caregiving is a job for sure. Unfortunately, we've seen that from our experiences when we have come into contact with those who really go through the motions of the job. You could say it's the letter of the law, not the spirit. The work for them is just not in them. For those of us called to do that work outside of professional capacity, the scope and implications of the job turn out to be more than you could have ever anticipated. I know that was true for me. When my wife reached that crossroads in her life, where her life and, as a side effect, the relationship we shared, met the irresistible force of debilitating illness. It was I who was enrolled in the most consuming, challenging, and all-encompassing work I could have ever imagined. Work that forever changed me as I learned what true caregiving was all about. Going into it, I never had a clue as to what was ahead. My wife was always the strong one. Her very personality had a resilience that always was captivating to me. Perhaps because of my strength was loyalty and dependability. Coupled with her strength, we were quite a team. But on that terrible night of April 15th, 2015, when we both encountered something that neither of us could deal with, not only this emerging illness, but also the beginning of the end of the lives we knew. The pain she was facing was more than any words I can summon can attempt to explain. We were totally helpless, literally screaming out at God at one o'clock in the morning. My first 9-11 call, a pathetic mess of a person trying to be coherent in the midst of the incoherence of the moment. The amazing EMTs who came to sweep us out of that moment and lead us to all the moments we would never foresee that were ahead of us. 
Caregiving on the surface, at the beginning of it, just meant taking care of her, helping her in every way. Little did I know the caregiving path I was now on would take me to places I could have never dreamt of, mainly because the work took me to places in myself I really never knew were there. Readers of these essays know of our relationship. It was not typical. It was beyond special. It had that rock-solid foundation that could not be broken, even in this. So when I was called to serve, my first thought was, I'm going to take care of her, no matter what. It really did not matter any longer about my life, even my profession, or anything about me. I remember thinking, I am staying with her. I don't care if I lose my house, my job, or anything I have at all. All that mattered was being with her as she faced the most awful time anyone could face. Men want to fix things. I'm no different. I wanted to fix this. I knew I couldn't, but as long as she was in trauma, I knew one thing. I would also be in trauma. The hardest thing of all the hardest things that were a part of that time was knowing she was in pain. It was a continual knife in my heart. It was constant in me because it was constant in her. Underneath all of that was life, the operational life, just enduring the moments to live. This was my new job. The lessons of all that were my thoughts and needs no longer mattered. I had no capacity for that anyway, but neither did I have the desire for me. It was all about her. She could no longer lay down because of what we later found out were the compromised vertebrae in her back. So she could only sit upright on our swivel chair in the living room. That would be where she lived for the next five months. So I camped out on the couch. It did not matter about my comfort. I no longer had any concept of my comfort. Since she was compromised, I no longer mattered. Caregiving in such intensity is something you cannot perform on your own strength because we do not have enough on our own. But every waking moment, as well as those moments that attempted to be sleep, were focused on her. She was all that mattered. There was nothing else. Caregiving by its very nature demands that you focus on another person, their issues, their comfort, their needs. At first, in the adrenaline rush of the cataclysm, you are propelled by all that the situation is driving you to deal with. The needs of the person drive everything. No, actually, everything. Really, everything you could imagine. Because the situation is crying out for what it needs. It needs someone else to step in, to be the strength the hurting person needs but can no longer supply for themselves. I remember in the midst of the initial crisis thinking that she was going to die as a result of what was occurring. Later, she would tell me that that was never on her mind. A tribute to her strength and resilience, those qualities that had hopelessly captivated me and had never stopped doing that. Beginning my career as a caregiver then started in the crucible of fire, of pain, of anguish, and of total ignorance of how to be a caregiver. Those lessons would come and never stop coming. As a caregiver, you strive to provide comfort. Most of the time, the dream in your heart of hearts is removing the affliction from the one you care so deeply for, but that is never achieved. You have no power to do that, but you have the power to keep them from being alone in their affliction. I can speak volumes to that. Having spent the past months in the worst place imaginable, alone, drives home that fact. As a caregiver, no matter how helpless you may feel, you are not leaving them in their time of affliction. 
There's no relief to that in one sense, but in another, it is everything to have that dedicated person focusing everything they are on the one they are caring for. At times I would muse, at least a sixth person gets tended to, us caregivers rarely have time off. When the needs are intense, so becomes the caregiving. It is your job, and you are on the clock 24-7. During my time embracing my sweet, precious wife as she endured the trial of our lives, the appearance of my flesh was quite distasteful. Negative thoughts, cries to be satisfied, to have some relief, constant pulling at my soul to just escape. But there would be no escape for me. In my heart of hearts, there could never be. This was a person who meant more to me than these words can convey. There would be none of me while she was in distress. As the months and really years rolled on, my role became less consuming, although emerging from the miracle of her cancer disappearing from her CT scans four months after that terrible April night, we were left joyful and with a new reality. Our lives forever changed from the experience. Her capacity diminished from the ordeal, but her spirit and faith in God never altered in even the slightest way. Her focus was rock solid because her life at its core was grounded on the rock. As far as I was concerned, my job was awaiting my return, now resuming full-time work as we navigated how we would operate. Our new life emerged as a new phase of caregiving, one in which I was responsible for more than before. I had a sister in dressing. She, thankfully for both of us, never lost her drive to cook, something for which I am grateful beyond words. Cooking was her joy. It is odd that right now I cannot even think of cooking, a remnant of the conflict, I am sure. But the unrelenting need to constantly be occupied in some task, be it working or caregiving or helping her in every way and tending to life in general, kept me from me. I had been trained to ignore myself. No matter how the self protested and complained, that conversation was fruitless. The self was no longer part of this new life I had. And through it all, I know that it was God's strength that took me through this. If you are a caregiver, know that his strength is available to you as well. I seriously do not know how I was able to make it through our ordeal other than his power was making that way where there was no human way. And on that awful day in August 2019, when her race was over, so was my caregiving. A bitter release from the task I had willingly taken on, had immersed myself in and had surrounded her with all that a human could provide, while God provided the rest. In this life, as it has unfolded, as much as I want her here, God ruled on our request to him. We were the joyful recipients of a miracle in 2015, and with as much faith as we had for this life, his decision was clear. Her race was over. My caregiving was over. He would now take over for both of us. Her to await the reward that awaits all who now sleep. See First Thessalonians 4.16. Me to await a new life that I cannot grasp without her. The lessons everywhere. The love of God enables us to do these things, to endure the afflictions, rejoice in the blessings that we receive in the midst of the affliction, and rely on the only one who can enable us to survive, to await the next steps for us, that are a part of his plan. Listen to the words of Paul the Apostle. He understood suffering, both as an instigator of suffering on so many and as a messenger of the hope that Christ offers to all of us. 
as his free gift to free us from ours. Yet what we now suffer is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is awaiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Romans 8, verse 18 through 23. In your caregiving, whether it has been in the past or is currently your life, remember the one you serve here, that precious one who needs you and appreciates you more than their affliction can allow them to express. And remember the one who can give you the strength to meet anything that affliction can throw at you, so you and your loved one can emerge as victorious, victorious as our Savior's sacrifice willingly given for you has conquered this world and its afflictions, the sacrifice that is available to you if you will embrace and believe in it. Selected Essay 11, Reflections on Volume 8, A Look at Where We Have Been. In this essay, we summarize the end of Volume 8 of the essays. Each volume has reflected the journey as it unfolded. Volume 8 marked the end of the ongoing essays. From Volume 8 Lessons, this is an essay written on July 20th, 2020, Day 343 of the Journey. This Volume 8 is not the end of my journey. It is but a waypoint along the road of this new, strange, surreal place that is now my life. And yet, it is but another loss, the end of the season of mourning for what has been lost. In the cosmic scheme of things, it is by far the smallest of small things when put into the perspective of God's plan, a plan that we are a part of, a plan made certain of success, because of the one who gave of himself to guarantee for us new lives we cannot even comprehend. This time, then, has been a time of reflection and healing, because the human spirit was not meant to die, our relationships not meant to be broken. In that brokenness, the painful revelations of why we needed a Savior and what he has done for us are all too evident. As I now step into the mythical future that I have dreaded for so long, the journey will be new. The essay is a reflection of the past life that will soon be in the rearview mirror of the journey. At the end of the ninth month, I began a separate set of writings that I called Observations on the Essays. This branch will be more of a blog type of posting. Occasional postings as the situations of the new life emerge. The seven existing postings also have powerful moments that have been as difficult for me as some of the essays have been. If you have the opportunity to read the post of July 12, 2020, Remnants of the Precious, you will see how powerful these writings can be. As I grappled with minor health setbacks this past week, nothing major, it was a fitting time of facing yet more physical reminders of this difficult place. Yet in that affliction, developing a resolve fitting with this time of completeness that is ahead. 
I declare that I am tired of the struggle and will not accept the onslaught of awful that has been the way of life I have been living. Perhaps this is a sign of the proverbial moving on that I have held in such semantic disdain. Perhaps it is the coming one year. Whatever it is, I am embracing the unknown while knowing God does know the way. Sadness will always be a companion to everyone in grief. Yet now I see in the completeness of this time will come something new, something unexpected. Sadness, hope, despair, joy, anger, happiness, resolve. Words cannot express the fullness of what has taken place these past 11 months. Those words touch on just some of the edges of the journey. As I reflect on where I am today, reflecting on all that has taken place, now pausing before the fork in the road that appears, I am humbled and in awe that I am even here and no doubt will remain that way as I experience and see whatever God has prepared for me unfolding in the days and weeks and months ahead. Amen. Selected Special Essay 12, Remnants of the Precious. They are your very core. A Special Observation of the Essay, written July 8, 2020. In all of us, we have this special place inside. It is deep within us, a place where no one can go, a place where we keep something rather important, rather critical to our very existence. It is where we keep what is absolutely precious to us. This precious thing or things, they are very private. Their power is quite strong, for what we hold precious, what really means something or everything to us, drives our activities, drives them often without our even being consciously aware of them. What is the most precious thing to you will drive you like nothing else. Where some things, most things really, can be excused, minimized, or ignored, those most precious things will propel you on with a dedication and energy that is stunning when you really see what is at work. You know the precious by your actions. What will you do without question? What do you do no matter how tired you feel, how inconvenienced, how impossible? Those things drive you beyond your normal qualifications and restraints. Why? Because these things matter to you like nothing else. They can be as mighty as a respected person, someone you would literally do anything for, at any hour, at any time. You do not matter. They are so precious to you that responding to them is really all that matters. They can be as mundane as a sports team, one you will travel to the farthest game to see, to wait in the longest line for a ticket, brave extreme conditions to be a part of the activity. Whatever that thing or things is or are, you will be driven like nothing else when they appear on your radar. Why? Because these are the things that mean something to you. Mean something to you at the very core of your being. They are precious to you. And what is precious to us is really what drives us. We all have something. If you do not consciously recognize yours, do not worry. It is there. You can tell by looking at what motivates you to action. Then you will find a clue or two. In grief, our response to our loss is one of proximity and emotional connection. Losses that are distant, losses for which you do not have a deep emotional connection, are not as powerful. 
The power that grief has over us is in direct relation to what is most precious to you and how that precious thing or things has been affected by the loss. I know that these essays are a result of my incredible loss. Loss of something so precious to me, I can barely describe it. Something so close to me that I was joined emotionally at a level few achieve. Losing, then, something of that magnitude explains to me why my struggle has been, and continues to be, so great. Preferences and superficial choices can be altered rather easily, but connect those preferences and choices to the most precious thing at the very core of your being? The impact of that loss and that connection is a cataclysm of titanic proportions. I know. I have lived it. Writing about the loss has been essential to my survival. Conversations, in a sense, to myself, my inner self, like a telephone party line, the written essay a way for others to tap into the dialogues. Whether there is meaning to the casual observer is up to the listener. Whether there are lessons to be learned through another suffering is also in the eye of the beholder. Our deep and heartfelt emotions, at any level in our lives, if not observed by the empathetic, are just material that fiction stories are made of. Stories of another life that the reader vicariously is able to partake of and be entertained by the revelations. But for those of us at our personal ground zero, the place where the bomb has been dropped, that place of utter devastation where our former life once stood, we grapple with the implications of dealing with the loss of the precious. This is the element that those grief observers will tell you takes time. Yes, it does. Because rewriting the emotional script in your very core is something that does not happen on any timetable. There is no schedule, no checklist, no bullet points. There is just the trauma of losing your core. And there is nothing comparable that can really replace that loss. Our struggle then is to find ourselves at a new equilibrium, that place where we have lived with the loss, mopped up some of the devastation, cleared a path to even survey the now empty core of our lives. That place where we can finally see outside ourselves. See outside ourselves to what our life looks like now. It is surreal, empty for sure, devoid of the joy and the love and the rhythm of what our life was. Yet it is where we ultimately land. And what we find then is the reference point to a new life, a new life that is waiting for us to join it. What is that new life? Who knows? Those of us in grief who have God with us have a source of strength like no other. It is that strength that helps us cope, helps us see, and when the time is right, helps us to act. And until that time comes, we may not know very much, may not want to acknowledge much, but what we do have and what we will always have is something that is special beyond words. Underneath that new life, whenever it will appear, that new life will have a new core, a new core built upon an old foundation, a foundation which will be its starting point going forward. This foundation will represent everything that was in us, everything that drove us, everything that was us those most special elements that, even though they have left this earthly realm, are still part of our very being. Our new foundation, and the coming new life then, 
will have an amazing starting point. We may not perceive this as the case. We do not have to. What is at our core, that core that still brings us to tears because of its loss, knows what is valuable, what is precious. It knows because it has a model. And you know as well. You know how your precious one thought, acted, loved. Certainly we are human and nothing is perfect in many ways. But what takes those imperfections of our lives and blends those imperfections with another, when built upon a foundation of love, that connection is undefinable by any words we can find. And yet it was. And we lived it. And you know what it was. And that it will be the base of what will become new. You're not going to replace the precious. No, you cannot. But you can build upon the rock, not only the rock that gives us the strength amidst our afflictions and losses, but also the rock of what was the most important thing in your former life, all that made your life your life. You will always know that they are there. They will ground you, reassure you, and strengthen you because they will always be a part of you, those remnants of the precious. Epilogue. This ends the presentation of the selected essays. Visit Facing Grief the Essays at www.essaysongrief.org to view the entire collection of essays and additional writings. Visit Facing Grief the Podcast at www.soundcloud.com to listen to over 60 of the essays that have been narrated. It is our prayer that you will be blessed in your grief journey by what you have experienced here. Questions? Comments? Contact us at contact at essaysongrief.org.